Welcome. You are listening to Bookalicious, not just any book podcast. I'm Paul Jarrett, together with Gwyn, Lara and Holly. Join us on a journey exploring the world of books and words. Be inspired. Get new reading ideas, sometimes serious, but always fun. Bookalicious is a podcast to open your mind. Welcome to episode three of Bookalicious. And the title this week, this month, is We Are Made by History, which is a quote from Martin Luther King. You will find in the wonderful things we've got lined up uh, for this podcast, we have interview with Dave McCall, also known as author David Ebsworth, along with our own wonderful Holly Thorpe. We went away and just talked about historical fiction and I think we came to the conclusion that it's all just history but it we had a great chat so that's coming up later. Um, also I've got a few clips of Barbara Erskine, best-selling international selling author of Lady of Hay amongst uh, I think we worked out 20 other uh, novels or at least books. There is also a very touching story of a friend of mine whose life was changed by reading Uhtred series. Many of you will know uh, the Lost Kingdom series on now on Netflix and uh, she started reading that series and you'll find out later how it changed her life. In the meantime I have with me Lara, Gwyn and Holly. Hello everyone. In time-honoured tradition, let's find out what you've all been reading this week. Uh, Who am I going to say? I'm going to start with Lara. I know, Lara, that you like to finish books, don't you? (laughs) (laughs) Most of the time, Paul, that is an accurate summary. However, I I, I will say four or five books, uh, okay, over the past week and a half. Not not too bad. Oh, that's good. Should we start with the one I didn't finish? <laughs> well, we... yeah, yeah, we could do that because it's my fault. I get you. You wanted to read it, and I did warn you. Um, so yeah, go on. Tell us about. I can't even remember the title. Um, A sound mind. How I fell in love with classical music. Yes, that's the one. Yeah, it's a Have book you... that will stay with me, everyone, for a while. <laughs> <laughs> And um, you were quite uh, you were quite upbeat about it when we last spoke, but um, it, it kind of went the same way as it did for me, didn't it? Yeah, I think I think I was very sort of optimistic and hopeful, and I li- I was actually listening to some of the playlists, and it was really in- engaging reading it and, and and listening to them. And I was I got I think probably about three hundred and fifty pages in. And then I really started to struggle with it. And I'm not somebody who will give up a book easily. Uh, I, I think maybe once or twice that's ever happened where I put a book down and never, ever gone back to it. I just lost, I, I lost momentum. <laughs> <laughs> but that's all right. It's all right, though, yeah, to let it go, it. isn't like, it? Like yeah. some, sometimes, I mean, because it is a 600-page book. And, and one of my friends was like, don't you feel slightly disappointed that you didn't finish the book and I said no quite honestly it just 
just wasn't for me. It wasn't the book for me. We might get, you know, listeners listening saying, oh, you know what? I, I absorbed every single word and loved every single page. And that's fantastic. That's the wonderful thing about books. Maybe something that might not necessarily gel with you might be really appreciated by someone else. So, yeah, I mean, I would recommend giving a dipping into it to people. Yeah. You know, it's very some of the, the, the tracks, the classical musical tracks are absolutely gorgeous that I've mm. never heard of before. Um, but yeah, I didn't finish that one, I'm afraid. Well, <laughs> so have you have you read anything fun in the last week or two? Oh, I I I have. I I, I don't know why, but I think I've been sort of finding my myself going towards historical fiction, either because of our theme or not. But I was recommended a book from uh, our good friend Claire from Waterstones recommended "People of Abandoned Character" by Claire Whitfield, and this book was a book that. I have really been looking forward to this year as it is a basically a, a, a Victorian marriage where the uh, wife in it believes that her husband might actually be Jack the Ripper. So I was instantly hooked on that. And it, I'm about 50 pages in. It's absolutely brilliant with thoroughly. So thanks to Claire from Waterstones from that one, because historical fiction, she really enjoys historical fiction and the, the the selection is always incredibly strong so I would I would recommend that one I'd also recommend our book club book actually Sarah Waters The Little Stranger I saw that I tried to read this a while ago and I don't know I didn't gel with it but I saw a TV adaptation of it recently and it was wonderful it's spooky it's creepy and those are the books I would probably recommend yeah, we've got uh, Little Stranger, uh, probably by the time the podcast goes out, we'll have had our meeting uh, of the of the book group. And I do apologise, I haven't updated our website uh, at uh, bookalicious.com um, yet, uh, <laughs> which is a bit late, but I will do for, for the book group element of it. Um, it'll be interesting to see what other people think. Gwen, you're looking uh, really studious, as if, if you've read 20 books in the last month. Um, honestly, yes. Um, uh, no. <laughs> um, no, I. in terms of what I've just been generally reading, I have been sticking with Anne McCaffrey's Dragon Riders of Pern series, which Ooh. is just a lot of fun and nice to get back into. Um, but uh, books like, talking about historical fiction, I do want to give a plug for a book I read some years ago when I was doing my book blog, Book Diaries. And it's not a very well-known one. I think when I bought it, I can't remember how I came across it. I had to get it off Amazon Marketplace because I don't know whether it's out of print. So my copy is secondhand. But I really loved it. And it's sort of like magical realism, but it covers a period of oh, decades of history across the 20th century. So I'd quite, even though I've not read it recently, I kind of found myself thinking I'd really like to reread it sometime soon. Um, although it's a bit of a semi-doorstop, it's about 500 pages. Um, it's Shark Dialogues by Kiana Davenport. And if I had to give it a little soundbite what it's like, I would almost say it's like a Hawaiian version of The House of the Spirits Ooh. by Isabella Allende. So it, it covers very similar themes as like a family matriarch uh, and she has daughters and then granddaughters, and the granddaughters are summoned back to Pono, the matriarch's uh, coffee plantation, for some unknown purpose. And they're all a bit scared of her, and they're all a bit, um, she's very mysterious. So it's, it's a fantastic book, because you get 
if you don't know anything about the history of Hawaii, read this book and you will find out it covers Pearl Harbor. It covers all sorts of stuff about the, the joining when they became um, the, the latest uh, state of the United States. Um, it covers the resistance movement to people who objected to being incorporated into America. Uh, there's so much history in there and a wealth of different cultural backgrounds. All of Kono's daughters marry into different different ethnic groups. Uh, there's there's a Caucasian relationship, there's Filipino, there's Japanese and Chinese. So all of the granddaughters have these very different cultural upbringings. Um, they all come together and it's uh, interesting to, they wonder why they've been brought together. It's, it's fantastic. I mean, it's kind of not, not a mystery, but you do wonder what's going to happen. Why have they been brought together? What is the big thing that they've been called in for? There's, like I say, there's a bit of magical realism in there in the, the character of Pono, um, which I won't go into any detail about, as it's it's so light as to not be off-putting if you're not into fantasy. But it's fantastic. There's history and there's a little bit of mysteriousness and it's all set in this wonderful landscape. But with her writing, Keanu Davenport's writing, you, you really get a feel for what Hawaii as a land is like. So although I haven't read it recently, I want to reread it again because I enjoyed it so much. So that's going to be my plug for historical fiction. Uh, Holly, even though you, you, you're going to, we're going to hear a lot more from you uh, later on in the show about uh, uh, why you like history. And I'm guessing that you have been reading historical fiction almost nonstop for the last month. Yeah, it's, um, I don't, I, <laughs> so I don't know why I said it like that. Um, yeah, I think for the first month, like two weeks, I didn't really read much because I think I had my assessments and then I slept basically for a week. <laughs> um, but then I've had, I've been reading some more. Um, so I've got them, got my iPad balanced on them. So I'm trying to read them. Um, Tracy Chevalier, um, I think that's how you say her name. Yeah, yeah. Um, Girl with a Pearl Earring. Um, I got The Book Thief by Marcus Susak. Um, Tale of Two Cities, Charles Dickens, and Ham Hamnet, Margie O'Farrell. Um, they've been my my big four. Yeah, you guys have been getting wanting me to read Hamnet for a while. Yes. Um, and I was like, I, I have to read it. I have to do it in this. Um, and have it's you really read good. it? Yes. I finished it literally at about 20 past six, and we started recording this at half past. Um, but yeah, I really, I really like that. And I'm doing Shakespeare in school at the moment, and it was really interesting to see how she portrayed him. Yeah, I really liked her. I really liked how she did it. Because uh, I, I, I don't know what I expected, but I thought it would be mainly focused on the boy. And it's not, which no. is really, I really like that, actually. I, I like um, Agnes. I think it's Agnes. Yeah, Agnes. Um, and, yeah, she, the, and it's not uh, It's not focused on Shakespeare either, is it? He's kind of a, I, he kind of wanders in and out yeah. and he isn't even named. You notice that? Yeah. I, I thought that was so cool because I wasn't sure if I missed it once, but I liked that he was always like the son or like the glove thingy's son. I was like, that, you know, what a power move. Yeah, that's, yeah, the, yeah, yeah it's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, The Tale of Two Cities was another one I'd been wanting to read for a while. Um, was a not a struggle because I did enjoy it. Like, I really liked the plot. Um, but I have just, I underlined all the words I didn't understand with a pencil. And there's a lot, there's a lot of them. Um, but, I really like that. That was a good book. Um, if you kind of look past some things that might be confusing, it's worth it. Really good plot. Um, book Thief was amazing. I, yeah, 
I never rate stuff on Goodreads because I get really scared of making definite choices. <laughs> but that was the first book I ever rated. I gave it five stars off the bat because it was um it was brilliant. So yeah, those are my oh and girl with the pearl earrings. Oh, yeah, girl that yes, was, that tell was great. Us. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Tracy uh, Chevalier, oh, um, yeah. really, really good writer. Really, really like her. I, I, I thoroughly recommend um, all of her books. Next month's theme is uh, fantasy, but you reckon we're not a million miles away with historical fiction and history. You think they're quite related, don't you? Well, I, I think that there are some books within fantasy which um, could be classed as historical fiction because they cover different periods of history. Um, there was something else that I read a while back, um, and I'm almost embarrassed it took me as long to re get round to reading it as it did. The Witch's Doors by Paula Braxton. Uh, and that is another book that moves through different periods. Um, I, it's probably not too much of a spoiler to say the main character has an extended lifespan, so we see her in different periods of mm -hmm. history. And again, in next month's uh, show, I'm going to be doing an interview with Tiffany Angus about her novel, The uh, Threading the Labyrinth. And that, again, features, I'm going to say time slips, um, because it's not done in a particularly chronological fashion. But again, it looks at characters in one location at different periods of history. So 16th, 17th century, I think, um, the 19th century, um, the Second World War with the Lamb Girls. So there's a lot of jumping about. Mm -hmm. And I think fantasy in particular, if you think of science fiction, if you like, as going into the future, the fantasy, I think, has scope for going into the past. And you can have fantasy set in the past as much as you can have it set in the present. And I think if you're dealing with mystical creatures who might have extended lifespans, whether that's witches or vampires or werewolves or whatever, these, especially vampires, think about it, they, they, live, they exist for centuries. So well, I think it's, it's not so much that historical fiction and fantasy have lots of crossover, but it is certainly possible to, for, for a lot of fantasy to dip its toe into the historical setting, simply because of the nature of some of the characters. And I guess it's interesting to see those themes debated over a period of time to see how our real world reacts to the strange and the other. I think you've done this unconsciously, Gwyn, but you've just done an amazing introduction to uh, a clip uh, that I want to play of my conversation with Barbara Erskine, who I I think I introduced her at the Wrexham Carnival Worlds as, as the queen of time slip. Um, and she genuinely is. Her latest book, uh, The Dreamweavers, um, and I'm going to take a couple of clips out of that interview for you to hear. And I think when you hear this about uh, The Dreamweavers, exactly what you've been talking about. Well, let's come on to the Dreamweavers. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I wasn't um, just putting this on because I'm talking to you, but, I, you know, I, I received the copy a, a while ago and, and I, I, I started it. I, initially, I looked at it a bit like Lady of the Hay and I, 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 I do look at books and think that's quite a lot of pages. But I, I read it within a very few days. It is a, a, a fabulous story that is 
um, keeps kept me totally gripped all the way through. I, I mean, I love history, but the characters in modern times are also engaging, and 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 um, uh, I really, really did uh, enjoyed it. I urge everyone to go out and buy it, and I'll say that again before the end of this interview. <laughs> but we both said before we started this interview, it's very, very hard to even talk about the book um, without giving. <laughs> All sorts of things away. Quite early on, things could take different directions. But I'm going to give you the challenge, Barbara, to to uh, sum up the Dreamweavers for people who haven't come across it yet. <laughs> well, it is uh, the historical part is set in the uh, time of Offer, of Offer's Dyke fame, and that's why everybody's heard of him. Offer's Dyke, <laughs> he wouldn't be pleased about that. No. But he uh, was King of Mercia, which was one of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. And um, an interesting guy, because I used to live on the east coast of England, we didn't sort of come across Offer much because Mercia was, was the Welsh side. In fact, Wales's neighbour. Yes. In fact, Wales didn't exist. So that's part of the story. But um, he... Um, it wasn't him that attracted me, except that walking on Offa's Dyke every day, we're so close to it here. Um, it did occur to me eventually to think, why? You know, why Offa's Dyke? What, what, what's this all about? And uh, so I went to um, Knighton, which of course is about halfway up the dyke. And there's a wonderful centre there, which has history, um, museum, good biscuits, um, all the things you need in the centre. And um, there again, it just told me about the dike, basically, and the walk. It's a national trail. And from the River Severn right up to the Irish Sea. Is it the Irish Sea up there? Yes, it is. Um, um, I think, I think it's the Liverpool Bay, almost, and the D-Estuary. Prestatin Way. Yes, it's not near, it's sort of. We'll, we'll let yeah. you have Irish Sea, yeah. <laughs> But anyway, the, um, I started to look up Offer and then I started to find some stories about his family. And that's where I suddenly, you know, lights started, mm -hmm. light bulbs started to flash because he had a very interesting family. And he was centre to a lot of history we have heard of. So um, that was where I based my historical side. And then I had to make a link from the modern story. And um, Hereford seemed to be the place to start because the Welsh were always popping over to burn Hereford quite <laughs> regularly. And um, Hereford didn't like that very much. Well, Offa didn't like it. And um, so he took the eye, the, he, he made a plan to just shut the, the Welsh kingdoms off rather than constantly being having to rush down and fight them. And he seemed to think that digging a ditch would do the trick. <laughs> <laughs> um, but having having centred it around Hereford, the centre of Hereford, which was Hereford Cathedral, basically, or the Minster, which was there first, um, I, I kind of needed some characters who were based very close to the cathedral, which is what happens. Yes. Dot, dot, uh, dot. <laughs> <laughs> that hasn't given anything away at all. So that was um, Barbara Erskine, who um, historical fiction and fantasy and ghosts and, well, in that particular book, lots of stuff about the Anglican Church as well, from Anglo-Saxon times all the way through to current times. 
Um, so I hope you enjoyed that. We are going to move swiftly on because we've got so much to do on this show. And of course, you haven't heard enough of Holly yet in this show. So um, I went off just last week and had a chat with Dave McCall, or Dave, uh, known as David Ebsworth, author of, I can't remember how many books he does tell us uh, in this interview, because what better person to talk to than someone who's written quite a few books in different time periods. He, uh, he, he was great, but Holly, you joined us as well. And, and this is the point at which we go, Holly Thorpe, highly commended in the young Walter Scott uh, Fiction Prize. Well done, Holly. Thank you. Hey. Um, we, we, we won't talk a lot about that now, but just well done for that. That was, uh, I, I, and you talk a little bit about it, the, it, it in the interview. We are hoping, aren't we, that we do say uh, in, in, in the clip um, something about it appearing on the Walter Scott Prize website, but it kind of hasn't yet, I don't think. You reading your story. Isn't that right? Yeah. Oh gosh, that that yeah, that brought back <laughs> memories of that I was trying to do that. But yeah, it should be there kind of soonish. Maybe maybe check back in a few months. Sure okay. Oh, well, we'll put we'll put the website up uh, in the show notes so uh, everyone can go and enjoy. <laughs> anyway, look, we're this so uh, this is Dave and Holly and I are really just getting to grips with historical fiction. I'm joined uh, by uh, Holly Thorpe, who uh, regular listeners to Bookalicious. Holly uh, is one of the uh, co-hosts of this podcast, but uh, is here tonight especially to talk about historical fiction because she's won highly commended uh, in the Walter, Young Walter Scott Prize, which we're going to talk about. So um, I, I don't think you have a whole uh, list of previously published books behind you yet, do you, Holly? Um, not yet. I like the yet, though. That's inspiring. Okay. Yeah, but yeah. yeah no, well, there we are. Not, not that's, the moment. that's the best. That's a really good introduction. Isn't it? You know, winning winning a prize is a good start. And um, Dave McCall, who um, uh, listeners of uh, Callon Talks Books in our free, previous life, and also the very first episode of Book Edition, is David Ebsworth, a historical fiction writer. I don't know, Dave, how many books, uh, including the one about to come out? Uh, this will be, The new one will be the 11th. So, so 11 books. Um, yeah. most, most recently, the uh, Catherine Yale trilogy. Yeah, yeah, Yale trilogy. Yeah, yep. yeah. And um, also the third one that's just come out is a Jack Telford trilogy, um, which yep. is set around um, the Spanish Civil Wars. And you've delved into the Napoleonic Wars and uh, a little bit of... Um, I, I, was, was it... Pre-Roman Britain, I can't remember. Oh, um, post-Roman, post so Roman. Sixth, sixth century Britain. Yeah, and you've yeah. been um, Jacobites as well. You know, yeah. you've you've covered the historical spectrum. So Zulu uh, um, War. I, I, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So um, I couldn't think of two better people to talk to about why historical fiction is important um, and, and why we are passionate about it. And we've discovered this recently, the Wrexham Carnival of Words, um, the most uh, looked at events were History Day, which was um, sort of historical non-fiction, uh, and then the Historical Fiction Night, which is a regular feature and um, the m most watched and seems to be the most popular of, of all. Um, so I'm gonna dive in um, and ask you both um why is historical fiction important 
Um, well, I, it's an interesting point about the Carnival of Words because we actually had two events, of course. We had a, a kind of a, a whole afternoon that we called History Day, where we looked at non-fiction writing about kind of Northeast Wales, history of Northeast Wales and so on. And then we had historical fiction night with, where we dealt with the historical fiction. And it occurred to me that actually the question, you know, what, why is historical fiction important is actually the wrong question, Paul, if you don't mind me. No, no, saying please. So the, the important thing for me is why is history important to us all? So what, what was it that brought those two groups of audience members together, the, the history? And, you know, we know this, don't we? It's because, you know, basically we'd like to be able to learn the lessons of the past. We like to understand, understand how we got here and, you know, the kind of the stories that brought us to Wrexham in, you know, in, in this particular age and so on and so forth. And that, I guess, therefore, that's why the history is important. And the question for historical fiction writers is how do we then bring uh, history to the widest possible audience? Because whether we like it or not, there's an awful lot of folk out there that simply won't sit down and read a non-fiction tome about whatever particular period of history. But if you dress it up with a good bodice ripper or, you know, whatever, whatever you want to do with, with your stories, then naturally you'll bring more people to the history. You make it more accessible uh, to folk. And as long as you're true to the history and you get the history right, then you're doing a service to the history as well at the same time. That's what, you know, that's what I think's important, really. Ollie, what do you reckon? Is that about? Yeah, yeah, that's it. <laughs> I mean, you, um, lo you love history, don't you, um, uh, Holly? I mean, your, your, your A-levels at the minute are history and classical civilization and things. Yeah. Am I right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, very, very history related, but. Yeah, I, I kind of agree that it's um, the historical fiction is important because history is important. Because um, I know I the one of the books I've read for this like historical fiction month, um, it was about the period I was studying and it made me appreciate the period more. Well, not appreciate it because it was Nazi Germany, but, you know, um, like understand it a bit more. Because um, I think what people relate to as characters. And I know even I've been guilty of not reading historical fiction so much because I feel like I can't relate to it or it feels a bit dry because you just assume that it will be, but it's not, that's not true. And I mean, if it's written well and you feel like you can really connect with people or like the character, it's, it makes you feel that time period more. And then you feel the weight of what it was like back then more. And, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not sure where I'm going with this. I'm going to be honest, but yeah, that's, no, no, um... I think that I, I think that's fair, isn't it? You know, I think so. And you, because the thing about fiction is, it, of course, it should help us escape, shouldn't it? The whole the whole pebs of writing fiction <laughs> is to help folk escape from the from the humdrum, um, and and the one thing that historical fiction has got is that it allows people to time travel as well as to escape from the humdrum. You're not just kind of yeah. escaping into a, an alternative 2021. You're escaping into a whole new world. Time travel, I think, is that element of it really important. And and I, I think Holly's absolutely hit this on the head. What is it that, what is it that historical fiction does that historical nonfiction can't do? Historical nonfiction doesn't allow you to time travel in, in that same way. So you can read the, even the best of the narrative nonfiction history books, and they don't tell you what it's like to smell 
yeah. Nazi Germany in the 1940s, yeah. East Nazi Germany in the 1940s, to hear the music of who, which non-fiction history writer ever bothers to tell you about the music yeah. that the Nazis enjoyed. Yeah. And it, it's quite important that we understand that, isn't it really? Otherwise yeah. we tend to see everything in just this, you know, very sort of one dimensional, this is what happened and this is when it happened. But actually, the things about the music and the food and all the rest of that it's, stuff really, really I, important. I think that hits it bang on the head, actually, both of you, really. And, and um, uh, Barbara Erskine, who appear, will, it appears in this podcast as well, um, I think you'll hear me saying, actually, we talk about smell, actually, Dave. That's a very good point because you don't get it from an academic non um, fiction history book. Rarely yeah. do you actually get how it actually smelt in Anglo Saxon England. Um, although Matthew Harvey's book that I've just read, I could definitely smell being in an Anglo-Saxon uh, hall with all the drinking and the fighting, and you know, and it's uh, you know, it brings brings it alive. Um, so I think we, we kind of co covered that, uh, but I think there's a place, obviously, for the academic history as well, yes. um, because you guys, when you write uh, historical fiction, need something to research so perhaps the guys doing the legwork uh, and doing the doing doing the actual research that, that that's a really critical part i i want to um i want to kind of move on to the authors that uh, you admire as far as historical fiction go uh, or the people that maybe um got you writing i mean let's let's start with that well dave you've 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 written 11 books <laughs> and yeah. you, you you do regular talks about the you know the different eras that you've written about where, where did you first start what made when did you sit down and go oh, you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna write about this because your first published book was set around in wrexham around the jacobite rebellion wasn't it yeah well I, the thing about all of the novels i mean only <laughs> because you'd asked the question um is that they've all got this kind of stranger than fiction element to them as well, and I, you know, I could, I know what it is with most of with most of them. So that, that particular one, the first book, um, the Jacobite Apprentice, is about Bonnie Prince Charlie and the seventeen forty five Jacobite Rebellion, and uh, most of these things are just serendipity. I'd come across the fact that the way Bonnie Prince Charlie managed to finance most of that rebellion was actually through groups of merchants dotted about all over uh, Britain, but mainly in Manchester. And these were kind of, these were genuine, honest merchants, but they'd become, they were all Jacobite supporters. They were supporters of Bonnie Prince Charlie, and they raised money for this campaign but through tea smuggling. And tea smuggling at the time was the, like it, it it outshone any kind of ideas about drug smuggling. And so <laughs> the people that made all the money in 1745 Britain were tea smugglers. And they just made oodles of cash. And most of that cash went to the Jacobite campaign. And I, I loved it because it, you know, yeah. it kind of threw in Manchester and tea smuggling and all these things. So most of my books have got that element to them. And I guess where I, where did I, I still, I think that the first kind of historical fiction novel I ever read was when I was about 12 or 13 and it was Rosemary Sutcliffe oh, and 
Yes. Of course, she's famous for, you know, the Legion of the Ninth and lots of those. But the book that blew me away was her novel, uh, Sword at Sunset, which was a reimagining of what sixth century Britain was like. Sadly, she put King Arthur in the middle of it. <laughs> but uh, but apart from that, um, it, it's a beautiful book. It's beautifully written. The characters are superb and it does sort of tell that King Arthur story, but as though it was in a, a real life sixth century Britain. So that's kind of where I I started really. And I, I like the list of authors, I I started writing them down this morning, uh, <laughs> who, and I, I gave up, I sort of ran out of ink writing down the list. I, you know, there's so many authors that have inspired me over the years, but I came down to three non-historical fiction authors that I suppose have kind of steered me more than anything else. John le Carré, um, for, just for that beautiful depth of his characters uh, and the fact that you can have action on every single page without having a drop of blood. Um, you know, it, it, it's just full of conflict in the dialogue and and his descriptions of places are full of conflict. They're really interesting when you take his books apart. Patricia Highsmith, um, who I, ju I just love for Tom Ripley, inventing Tom Ripley was such a clever idea. And, you know, this complete anti-hero, Tom Ripley, who's got no morality at all. And yet, you know, he, he ends up doing all of the right things for entirely the wrong reasons and so on. It's a wonderful invention. And then Robertson Davis, uh, who I, I talked to Barbara Erskine about, Canadian author, but brilliantly weaves in things like art and music and goodness knows what else into into lots of his stories of intrigue. And then, you know, my so my and then my three historical fiction uh, inspirations: Rosemary Sutcliffe, I've already mentioned, Hilary Mantel, uh, of course, uh, and and Robert Harris. I think are my okay. maybe my my main my main ones. Yeah, I mean, I love the fact that you've brought up Rosemary Sutcliffe. I I, I... I th I think she was one of the first historical fiction writers I, I remember reading or having it read to me, actually. Uh, and The Eagle of the Ninth has lived with me from about the age of 10 onwards. Um, and it was the story tape, story tapes, Holly. Okay. They're, they're the sort of things we used to put in a cassette player in the car. Uh, for my kids, that was what we did on long journeys. We listened yes, to The Eagle too. of the Ninth. And, you know, for comfort listening, I'll go back to the dramatisation of The Eagle of the Ninth, far okay. better than any of the films they've tried to create out. Yes, absolutely. Um, but she was a fabulous writer, absolutely fabulous. Fabulous yeah. and, and and set my imagination for for anything historical, anything historical. I just loved as a kid. Yeah. You know? um, so, um, well, Holly, first of all, um, the Young Walter Scott Prize. Um, you know, you wrote, I, I assume, a short story, not a full novel. Yeah. Um, oh gosh. Yeah. Just yeah, a yeah. short one. Uh, yeah. And this was uh, highly commended, which uh, is. You know, quite, I th guess there were a lot of submissions um, and highly commended is kind of fourth place, I guess. Yeah, I, I think I think so. So yeah, that's, which um... is which is fabulous. And yeah, so the story um, you uh, well, you, you, you sent it off, hopefully the day before the deadline, I guess, is what you said. Um, and tell us a little bit about it. You know, the era as far as you can remember, because it was a while. Yeah, I was saying to these guys before I started that. Um, I rushed it in one day because I was last minute. I was very unorganized. I didn't see that there was a thing going on. So I chose 
um, the 1940s war, war period, just because it's this thing I, I knew most about. And growing up, I really liked, I can't remember a single phrase from it, but I used to love The War Horse, and I still do. Uh-huh. Um, Michael Morpurgo, I used to love his books. Um, and it was the thing of focusing on, I know they go to war, but like a boy and his horse, you just focus on a small bit of the war. Because if you just, if you mentioned armies, people aren't going to see people, they're just going to see an army. But you zoom that in and suddenly it comes a lot, it comes a lot more real. Um, just to clarify, I'm not comparing what I did to War Horse. It can't touch that. Um, but just that sort of, I like the thought of, I've gone off topic here. But, you know, doing something more down to earth. What was the question? Oh, my God. The question was, uh, 19, the story. So you set it That's in the it, 1940s. Sorry. And uh, and I'm taking it from what you said. You haven't taken the whole panorama of 1939 to 1945. Oh, yeah. Um. Um, sorry, I got, I rediscovered my War Horse book the other day. I got very excited. Um, but, yeah, I did. I, I don't know why I'm forgetting uh, when I looked at it the other day. But it is... Um, the story of these two women in like an apartment I think it's one of their birthdays I say I think because I was very vague with it so I don't really know um and it's just them waiting under a shelter there's like a bomb raid going off but they're just kind of chatting and then they reminisce about something and then they recall when they first met um and it's like their husbands have died so they moved in together sort of thing mm. um and not a lot really happens that's kind of just it but I like the thought of people back home I always find that interesting when thinking about the war like the people who were just there who were like lonely and waiting I kind of I don't know I wanted to focus on that bit a bit more sorry well it sounds great I mean at some point we'd uh, love to uh, dare I say even hear the story if you were allowed to read it to us yeah oh yeah. gosh yeah thank uh, you just say I'm, yeah. I'm me I'd, lo- I'd love oh yeah you want you want it as well there you go there's two fans yeah. I had to um I had to read it out to put on the website submission and I think I must have spent about five hours reading this story over and over again because I get to like the nine minute mark and I'd mess up on the final bit and I'm pretty sure I screamed I'm pretty sure I screamed at least twice oh, so it's, it's already so- out there then so people can go it's and listen to it on on the website we'll put that up on the podcast oh that's good oh yeah. we'll put it in the show notes yeah and your fame will spread across the world. Right. Uh, and what, so uh, Michael Morpurgo, who also was a fantastic guest at the Carnival of Words. What a lovely guy. Cool. I mean, um, yeah, it was it was really cool, actually. Um, so uh, he he's a bit of an influence. Any other um, pe- historical fiction writers that particularly you like? I'm going to be honest. I don't feel like I've read enough to, to really give a, an accurate... Yeah. I've, I've read... Um, Marcus Susak, book thief author. Um, I I never rate books on Goodreads. I get too scared to give them a rating. But I finished this this morning and I gave it five stars immediately. Um, So maybe someone like him. Yeah. yeah, I've got it. Honestly, I I really I hadn't read much much historical fiction. I thought I had, but I think I just watched a lot of Peaky Blinders, and in my head it hadn't translated that that wasn't a book. Um, But. You know, so uh, you, you've got a, a rich future ahead of you, you know, um, being highly commended. I do hope you carry on writing uh, and, and within that historical fiction as well. And then I'm definitely going to read more historical fiction books. Yeah. The re- well, I'm getting into it now. There's a guy called David Ebsworth and he's <laughs> well worth having a look at. Uh, can I mm. can I say? Um, yes, uh, Dave would never say it himself. He's too you're too modest, aren't you, Dave? Um, so. Mm. Uh, we we were just saying actually so the young walter scott prize and um dave and i were just talking about this before we uh, recorded this that possibly I, I i suppose walter scott is seen as the the first 
um, historical novelist. I I would say because the novel was quite young in the in the time yeah. when he first started writing, sort of late eighteenth century, early nineteenth. And I'd be really well. Yeah, I'm guessing you've never read any Holly because um, he's out. Don't, of, yeah, don't tell that to the to the the thing I applied for. But no, oh, no I haven't. No, we, we if it makes you feel better, though, I found in um, this bookshop in Flangoslin, I found this The Antiquary. I found that book of his. I'm pretty okay. sure all that him right. so haven't read it yet apologies says scott but he does seem very cool but he is he, i think he's a little bit out of fashion i i i would say um now i mean when um i was younger it, it's sort of the thing you grab my grandparents definitely read uh walter scott to each other either side of the fire in the winter and then mm-hmm. dave you were saying that you you sort of consumed them as 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 a child, but maybe not in novel form. I mean, there were well, a lot of uh, well, uh, funny enough. My dad was my dad was kind of almost completely self-taught and spent most of his working life in the in the in the Royal Navy, and he had this wonderful collection of tiny little books because, of course, there was no room for him to kind of have the full size thingy so he had all these like tiny little volumes of th- of like pg wodehouse and but and walter scott and dickens and so on it's all these tiny little but you could just about read the print in the damn thing so they were so small but he was a big fan of walter scott and so he introduced me to things like ivanhoe and the lady of the lake and stuff like that but i couldn't i couldn't cope with reading them they were too heavy hmm. um and at the time, it was wonderful, Holly. At the time, because at at the time, for the for the price of one and threepence a week, you could buy a thing called the Classics Illustrated, and it was actually and it was actually it was a comic of the classic novel. So That's you could cool. read it. So they were like early graphic. They were like sort of graphic comics. So you got the whole story of David Copperfield or whatever, the Oliver Twist or whatever it happened to be, but all with pictures and with kind of little extracts of the script. So, you know, and Phil, Philip Pullman tells this story about how by the, by the time he was 11, he'd read every single Charles Dickens novel. <laughs> He wow. read them all in Classics Illustrated. He'd read them all as comics, which is, but it was really neat because it did give you a flavour of all those great authors, but without you, I, like, like I'd read Moby Dick by the time I was eleven. I, co- I couldn't yeah. read Moby Dick now to save my life. You know what I mean? Well, I've just um, read Moby Dick, Dave, uh, no, uh, and and actually, I think it's a fabulous book. And there's a Absolutely no way would I have understood it until I reached uh, the ripe old age of 60 or so that I am now, um, yeah, because it's yeah. just... So, yeah, so Walter Scott, he probably was the pioneer. Of, I mean, his history, I, I'm not sure about his research. I mean, we've said how important research is and actually knowing it. And he probably, of his time, he, he did did a bit. But then he really did go away and invent stuff. I mean, he... Uh, uh, he did make it up. Well, there was a gap. He made it up. <laughs> I think it's there were lots of gaps. Yeah, there were lots of gaps. Yes. Lots of gaps in the in the in the you know the the history. So yeah. it's perfect, and all of those, right? You know, so Scott and later Robert Louis Stevenson and people, and you know, um, whatever Victor Hugo in in France, yeah. sort of write, writing Les Misérables and so on and so forth. They all had to do their research as best they could without Google and, you know, without Wikipedia. And it, mm. when you think about it, hell, Tolstoy, for goodness sake, the research that Tolstoy must have done for War and Peace 
which is a historical novel actually historical because novel. he was writing it was quite a few decades before the time he was writing oh uh, um, and before before we we kind of um round up historical fiction one of the historical a person who actually saw himself as a historical actually there's two um well-known writers who saw themselves as historical fiction writers over and above what they were famous for one is conan doyle yep who who you know holmes sherlock holmes was a burden to him uh, and his I always find that so funny because yeah. if he was alive now he would yes. he, oh I just the fit he would have it'd be so he funny would. he would because he, he he wrote loads of historical fiction you know uh, uh, he that was his passion the other one um, is John Buchan who we know for uh, Richard Hannay the 39 steps etc etc and yet his real passion um, was for for um, historical fiction. He wrote, um, I think he actually wrote a biography, a, a real historical non-fiction biography of uh, of uh, Oliver Cromwell. And he, he definitely wrote novels set around Bonnie Dundee and yeah. uh, Scottish history. Um, so it's quite interesting. In those days, it, it was seen as uh, some, something to aspire to. Now, I don't know how you feel about this. Uh, this came up a little bit in the carnival in some of our conversations, that historical fiction is kind of, well, it's a genre that's over there, like crime fiction. Um, and a, with the exception of Hilary Mantel, who's won the Booker Prize twice, it's kind of not seen as, well, you know, they're, they're good. They're good stories, good research, well-written, but it's not proper. Isn't they're, they're not proper literature, are they? Mm, I? Controversially, um, yeah, uh, devil's advocate here, guys. No, no, and it's perfectly right. It, funnily enough, I always have, I mean, other than, speaking to comrades like you two, I always try and avoid using the phrase historical fiction like the plague now, because I don't think anybody really now. So I had a couple of reviews last year and it was clear from one of the reviews that somebody would read, I think it was the first of the Yale books. And this lady had obviously expected it to be a bodice ripper. Because that's what she thought historical fiction was. She thought it was going to be a historical romance because she'd never read anything other than sort of Jean Plady type mm. historical romances. And it's a bit of a trap, I think, you know, for people who've only read one particular type of, or, you know, let me, the, the other example, the better example, somebody who loves C.J. Sanson, and don't we all assume that historical fiction is all kind of police procedural set in Tudor times or whatever it happens to be. Do you know what I mean? It, yeah. So, and actually there are so many subcategories, subgenres of historical fiction. I think it almost makes it that, you know, so you get action and adventure historical fictions, you get romance historical fictions, you get alternative history, historical fiction, so and so on and so forth. It's such a wide, such a broad church, I suppose you, mm. you say now. It's really hard to sort of pin it down. And as soon as you put a particular tag on what you write as historical fiction, yeah. you're automatically in the hands of the people who only see it as one, you know, one or other one of those categories. It's a it's a bit of a danger. So I'm always really careful. And I now I'm always really careful now on my uh, book cover blurbs and so on, not to use the phrase historical fiction. <laughs> I always say this is, you know, this is a political thriller, political thriller. And then you say, 
you know, 1939 and blah, 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 blah. So, the, you know, it's the setting that gives it away is historical, fi uh, historical fiction, not the fact that you've described it that way. I wonder if we've turned off all the podcast listeners by saying this is a historical fiction special. But hey, uh, interestingly, coming up in a couple of months time, and this is your fault, Holly, um, we're doing uh, the... Oh, Yes, your fault. The wild. Sorry, world. I didn't mean to. Yeah, um, we're doing the American the West, and it's really interesting. No, I, 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 I am immersing myself in westerns and uh, books about the American West. It's starting already. And, gosh, need to get films. on that. I've got a lot. I've got twenty books just here. Oh um, my gosh! Yeah, yeah, but what is it? Actually, the real Western is is a very specific time, sort of yeah. post Civil War up to yeah. maybe the early twentieth century. It's historical fiction, you know, it's, it's, uh, and so far the books that I, that, you know, I'm picking up things that I've never read before. Um, Owen Wister, The Virginian, which oh, um, we, we, uh, some of us may remember as a 1960s, 70s television series. Yeah. And, but this was considered to be the first Western. But anyway, that's, that's Jack, Jack Schaefer. Yeah. Yeah. Jack Schaefer, Shane. Yes. It's one of, the, one of the best books I've ever, 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 ever read. It's so beautifully written. Um, and it was so beautifully written that when they, when they produced the film adaptation of the novel, they just lifted the entire damn thing because the dialogue in it all was so perfect that they just, they literally just, they literally just took out the description, left the dialogues and that, that was it. Job done really. It was the easiest, apparently it was the easiest job a scriptwriters ever had. Um, and the, I, it also occurs to me that Matthew Harfey, one of our uh, favorite historical fiction writers who comes to the carnival said basically, although he writes about Anglo-Saxon um, Britain, it's essentially uh, a Western yes. set in Anglo-Saxon times. So, um, okay. So, yeah, so that's all your fault, Holly. Um, and and thank you so much for, for raising the whole American West thing. Before we finish this, and I'm throwing this on you because it isn't one of the questions I set you up for. Oh, no. That's oh, all right. No, you both... I wrote have... a list, Paul. I prepared for this. Oh. Great. That's excellent. Oh. Well, you always know I do this anyway, but you're both creatives, so, you know, you can make this up. Um, and this is a bit of um, given you both passionate about history, which era would you like to be transported back into? You don't have to go for very long, okay? Just in case you're worried about going yeah, back. Yeah, I was going to say they all—they'd all be pretty horrible. I'm going to be honest with you. Especially, After... if you. especially if you're a woman as well, I think it would be really tough. But, oh, um... I forget about that sometimes. I'm doing history. I'm like, well, they were bad, but it'd be fun. I'm like, oh, it definitely would not. I, yeah, I forget it sometimes. Good. I'm like, it would really not be. But oh gosh. Um, I can we can we switch countries or just period time periods? You can go wherever you like. This is yeah. a Doctor Who thing. Oh, cool, oh, cool. Um, I maybe it's just because I've been doing a lot of classics, but I'd love to go to ancient Greece because they seem crazy, and I would love to see that firsthand. Um, just like all the oh, I was gonna say sort of like Shakespeare era, like Jacobean, but then I think with the plague, I would give that a big miss. Ah. So yeah, maybe ancient greece um around like the golden age sort of period get to see some play i'll sneak in to see some of the plays hoping they'd let me in but yeah that would yeah, that would be mine some good food good wine good food you know you, you, yeah. yeah join those epicureans eh? and um well dave what about you i mean uh, gosh you you know you must you've immersed yourself in 11 different books so you must have immersed yourself in the period 
maybe none of them. None of them. I was just uh, so the 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 new book is um is a big chunk of it set in Casablanca in well sort of 1940 to 1942, and and it was just such great fun, right? Rebuilding 1942 Casablanca, and it was full of just fabulously interesting. Uh, people like Josephine Baker and a whole batch of other people. But I suppose if I had to pick only one, I, I'd have to pick sixth century post-Roman Britain. Wow. For the reason I said before, because even the best of our non-fiction historians and archaeologists, we only know four things about an entire century of British history. And King Arthur definitely isn't one of those four. Um, You're going so to tell us what the four are, Dave. Oh my God, I probably wouldn't remember now, Paul, I'm sorry. Um, well, the, the first thing is there was no invasion by Angles and Saxons. Okay. There was a kind of a steady migration, but it wasn't an invasion. And, and the Angles, the Saxons, the Jutes were coming here for the best part of 350 years. Not They didn't all appear. So in, they drifted in. in, yeah. in oh, they, drift, they very much drifted in. In, in the way of, of economic migrants rather than mm. anything else. Um, the second thing we know is, therefore, the post-Roman Britons weren't decimated by the Angles and Saxons. They were actually decimated by one of the very first bad uh, bouts of the plague, uh, which Holly's just mentioned. And the rest of them were kind of starved to death because there'd been this awful climactic uh, event in about 540 AD, which just destroyed crops, destroyed livestock, and so on and so forth. So the third thing we know was this, that there was widespread famine. So therefore, when the Angles, the Saxons, the Jutes come, they really just move into those areas which had kind of pretty much already been vacated by the Celts as they become more and more sparse. And the fourth thing that we know um, is that this wasn't the Dark Ages because Celts didn't write anything. That's clearly a load of nonsense. The, you know, the Romans had been here for the best part of 450 years. The idea that the Celts would have lived alongside them and remained illiterate for four and a half centuries is going to be one of the worst, you know, sort of mistellings of history that we've ever had. So there are very clearly lots of records of Celtic writing, but there is also, far more importantly, all of these statements from some of the leading priests at the time, uh, St. Patrick being key amongst them, that every single bit of Celtic text, history, politics, and everything else that they could find, they burned. Wow. So they, so, so that in, in that way, the Dark Ages was created rather than anything else. So the only thing that was left were the priests, the church, and the church's writing. And it was a very deliberate attempt mm. to kind of wipe out the culture that, that had been there before. So and they're the, but they're the only four things okay. that we, we kind of factually know about the century. So you'd like to go back and nosy around and find a bit more out? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That's and, a cool, that's a cool reason. It really is. It yeah. really is. I, I always think, you know, I, I I thought you'd be wanting to go back to, to Waterloo or, or whatever, you know, but I, I get that. My era, if I had to choose, um, I've just been listening to a whole lot of Neil Oliver's um, podcasts about uh, places uh, in, in British history. And uh, I keep going back to 
thinking about Orkney and that oh, Stone yeah. Age where something significant was going on in, in the Orkney Islands, which is now considered remote and barely part of Scotland, you know, mm -hmm. so you have to so struggle to get there, but actually was probably the centre of something really important in Neolithic times. Um, and again, like you, Dave, we don't really know. We only know what's been dug up uh, uh, and being found and we can surmise about some of the finds. Um, I wouldn't want to spend very long there because I suspect life was fairly brutal and short. Um, and that's just for a man, for a woman, probably even shorter because childbirth and whatever, you know, it's just uh, oh, uh, doesn't bear thinking. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. See, that's, that's it's, it's uh, but it's 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 fascinating. But we can all go there in our imaginations, can't we? Um, so uh, finally, um, Dave, I'm going to give you a moment with you to promote your new book. I'm interested to know, Holly, where do you go? having been highly commended and you know your story has got flagged up there uh, quite significantly and it's a, a significant prize you know that's uh, um what are you going to write next are you going to rush off and write uh, something else um well i have i have got something i'm working on i think it's only like 10,000 words right now and it's horrific currently and i mean that with all the love it is terrible right now um so i'm working on that it's not historical fiction. It's very weird. Um, and there's a the Alice in Wonderland prize oh, coming up. Yes. That's my ah. that's the the next missing chapter. I only I need to finish that book yes. actually. Yes. Um, yeah. So they're the they're the projects I'm working on. I'm just I'm hoping I can write something. I know it's probably a bad idea to set myself a time limit. I'm hoping I can write something before I finish uni. So ideally, I can just write and don't have to work. Yeah. But if I I'm I'm preparing for the fact that I will have to. But I'm trying to delay that. So yeah, that's, uh, that's, oh, that's a that's a magnificent way to approach the future. Yeah, and and actually, it's great that you mentioned the Lewis Carroll Society uh, Prize, hundred and fiftieth anniversary of uh, through the Looking Glass this year. And uh, again, we'll put this in the show notes. Uh, Dave, you might want to contribute. It's um, a prize for the missing uh, missing chapter, either in Alice in Wonderland or Alice Through the Looking Glass. I've seen it, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Which is the uh, money prize as well, which caught my attention. Wow. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> money was the main driver there for Holly, I have to say. Um, so, uh, multi-million selling uh, David Ebsworth, uh, <laughs> not multi-millionaire. But, no, stop um, it now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Jack Telford, your uh, Spanish Civil War um, survivor, I was going to call him a hero. No, yeah, hero, survivor, no, well, no, hero survivor. and survivor, yeah. Uh, he, you're moving into this uh, third book with him. He's a fantastic character. Tell us a little bit about it um, as far as you're able to, because it's not out until July, is it? Uh, July 14th. So it, it's the publication date is Bastille Day hey. uh, for reasons which I'll now very quickly explain. Uh, and that is that, yeah, so I've written these two books about the Spanish Civil War. And the second one literally finishes on the last day of the Spanish Civil War. And it sees Jack Telford and a whole pile of sort of Republicans who fought against Hitler, Mussolini, Franco through the Spanish Civil War, escape, a factual story, escaping on a ship called the SS Stambrook, and they managed to get themselves off to Iran in North Africa. Okay, so that, that's where the previous book finished, and that was in, in 1939. Um, and then the kind of the stranger than fiction thing that I saw that intrigued me was the fast forward five years, um, it's August 1944, um, uh, D-Day has happened, 
The Allies have managed to get all the way across northern France, out of Normandy. They're on the outskirts of Paris. There's a huge debate about whether they should try and enter Paris or not, because, you know, what will happen? Will the Germans destroy Paris if, you know, they try and take it and so on and so forth? But in the end, a column uh, of the Free French Army charge into the middle of Paris and they support the resistance there who've kind of risen against the Germans. And this, this tiny column uh, from the French army drive into the middle of uh, Paris and they support the, the resistance fighters and so on and so forth. And they managed to capture Paris without any damage being done to the city. Now, um, this is the French army, but this, the odd thing about this is that every single one of the soldiers in that column weren't French at all. They were Spanish. And they were actually Spanish Republicans who'd fought all the way through the Spanish Civil War and for whom the fight against Hitler and Mussolini was not finished. And it wasn't going to be finished until the Second World War was finished. And these are the guys who end up liberating Paris on the 25th of August, 1944. And I started wondering whether there was a link between the guys who'd escaped on the Stanbrook in 1939 and the guys who'd driven into Paris in, and of course there was. So in the midst of them is a guy, real life character called Amado Grenell, who ended up commanding this company of the, so he's on the Stanbrook. He goes to all these internment camps and so on and so forth, joins the French army, ends up commanding this company of Spanish soldiers that liberate Paris in 1944. So the job done, really. So all I had to do was kind of have Jack Telford stroll through this story. And uh, I just got totally absorbed. It's the longest thing I've ever written. It comes out at... How many does it come out? It comes out to 280,000 words. It's 800 800 and something pages. It's ridiculous, but fabulous doorstop. War and peace over there. Yeah, I was going to say, that's on the same level of war and peace, mate. I, I just, I loved every moment of it. And it takes Jack from, well, it takes Jack from Casablanca in Morocco to Brazzaville in Equatorial Africa to Cairo then back to North Africa, and then the whole of this Spanish unit, whole of this division of Leclerc's army, end up here in Britain, uh, waiting to be shipped off to Normandy. And they end up in a place that apparently everybody's heard of, but I hadn't, Pocklington in Yorkshire. It's just outside yes. just outside York. It is. So there's a whole chunk of the book that's kind of set in. So it kind of moves from Casablanca to Pocklington in <laughs> Yorkshire. <which> I, <laughs> I just, I just love really. So you, you can't you make this stuff of, up, can you? you that's well, the you thing. Make it up. And you get this kind of culture, yeah, really, yeah, of, yeah. you know, Jack having to get his head around the culture in Casablanca. And then these poor Spaniards trying to get their head around the culture of Pocklington in, in Yorkshire, you know, yeah. and they're, they're trying to explain paella to the people who won't really only want. Well, good good luck with that. I, I, I got married in uh, Harrogate and I. Uh, <laughs> I Oh, quick, 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 quickly escaped across the border. Um, so, uh, come on, uh, Dave, what's it going to be called? It's called The Betrayal of Heroes. Ooh, um, that's a good title. That's it is an excellent title. It deals with the whole question of the Moroccan... Uh, sorry, it's going to sound heavy now, and it isn't really. But it's got... So, the Morocco, so Morocco and Moroccan Jews that were mm. you know, part of the French Empire... 
that you know they're promised liberation at the end of the war they don't get it these poor spaniards who go out to fight for the french are promised that when the war's over you know the americans will help them get spain back from franco they don't get it uh, it uh, there's a whole this whole series yeah. of threads of you know what is betrayal and yeah. who gets betrayed and so on and so forth and that sort of flows through this well we we're going to have you back on bookalicious to 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 give you free flow to talk about it uh, <laughs> after it's out in in july um and i have to say even though you say it's 800 pages going on jack telford's previous uh, appearances uh, they're action-packed, you know. I, 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 I don't think you would the page, the page. You won't linger over the pages. You'll be moving on quickly. So, looking forward to that, Dave. Looking forward to that. Um, and well, who knows where your ten thousand words will go to, uh, Holly? We look forward to that as well. Yeah. And uh, um, I guess you've got a few historical essays to write before then as well. So. Uh, uh, sorry, I'm sorry to remind you. Uh, <laughs> look, guys, thank you ever so much for 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 playing along with this and um, along uh, what, what what you've been saying and along with some of the the, the clips we'll hear later from Barbara Erskine. Uh, hopefully, people will, who don't really know much about historical fiction will go out there and go, yeah, just go and grab this. Um, and uh, uh, so so thanks for for giving me your time. Thank you. You're very welcome. Ah, there's so much in this show um, and uh, we've got one more clip coming up, a conversation I had with uh, my friend uh, Rebecca Hill um, and she is going to tell us how Bernard Cornwall and the Lost Kingdom uh, series of books, not necessarily the series on uh, BBC and then Netflix, has changed her life. Um, so I think we'll listen to this and then we'll just come back and uh, 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 do uh, uh, sign out from the show. Well, I am delighted to be joined by a friend and former library student of Glyndua University, Rebecca Hill. Becky, how lovely to talk to you. How are you? I'm very good, thank you, Paul. It's lovely to speaking to you again as well. Yeah, a lot of water under the bridge. But the main reason I got you here tonight, this is going to be the first of many appearances, I reckon, on the Bookalicious podcast. Um, because as we, I was about to put to bed the Bookalicious historical fiction extravaganza that I've just been recording, you put up on Facebook your... Uh, well, how uh, Bernard Cornwall and his Utrecht series has changed your life. And you are a living example of how historical fiction can actually to totally transform someone's perception of history and storytelling and everything. So, Becky, tell us, Utrecht, how did he change your life? Oh... Uhtred and Bernard Cornwall, the two, just you can't separate them, although a lot of people associate it with him with Sharp, of course. But for me, he's always about Uhtred and the Anglo-Saxons and the rise and fall of Alfred the Great and his descendants and so on. Um, but it all started way back in oh, probably year 2000. Gosh, that's going back 20 years now, when I was... Con 
consecutively binging before Netflix was even around at the time. There was a series called Blood of the Vikings documentary on what used to be, I think, the past or the history channel on Freebie before it became Dave. There's a lot of things, as you can tell, have changed since then. Um, and not only did the documentary itself kind of like open my eyes to the history of it all, but between every series, between every episode there was an advert because back then you could advertise books on TV Yay. and you don't see any book adverts on TV nowadays um, for Bernard Cornwall's first book The Last Kingdom and of course it had a lovely long ship on the front and it was all very evocative I thought you know what I, I do read a lot and I did I've read a lot since I was young mainly fantasy starting off with Tolkien and the like I thought, I know, I'll buy that and I'll give it a go. And since then, I've not stopped reading his Uttred series and I'm starting to read his final, final, final book in the arc so many years later. Um, and that's really given me the bug, not just for the history of the Viking Age and the people, the culture, the religion, um, the places they explored, the craftsmanship, but also historical fiction, because that was the deep pool that I plunged into through Bernard Cornwall. It really immersed me in the world and brought it alive to me, alive to me in ways that I didn't get when I had history in GCSE. Mm. I mean, we touched briefly on the Vikings, but it was always kind of like, yes, they pillaged Lindisfarne, yes, they founded York and that kind of thing. Didn't really go into lots of stuff about the Vikings, but they always intrigued me because, of course, they're the typical bad boys of history and they've always got such a following they always attract people to them strangely enough out of all the cultures and people in history you can think of but this is this is uh, uh, genuinely uh, changed your perception in that way but you went off and and read everything you could read about vikings didn't you and has actually led you to uh, getting involved with the Jorvik center in york uh, and mm -hmm. and and so when I say it's changed your life, it really, you know, it's such a huge part of your life. You probably can't imagine what your life would be without all of that, can you now? No, not really. And yes, you're right. It kind of like after I finished one book, The Last Kingdom, I thought, well, what else is there out there that I could read? <laughs> um, so I started reading um, Giles Christian, his Raven, um, Blood Eye Saga. Um, I came across Justin Hill and his um, epic Viking fire book, which was all about Harold Hardrada. Um, I read Tim Severin. He did the Viking Child trilogy. I've read, gosh, well, there's so many. Um, but you, you've read. There's Theodore Brun. He's done a really big series <laughs> set kind of more internationally, but covering Anglo-Saxon and the Vikings, more set in Scandinavia. I even touched on James Aitchison um, because he covered more or less the kind of like the aftermath of 1066, but it was still very Anglo-Saxon. And of course, the Normans themselves are just great descendants of Vikings. Mm. They just happened to get some land and settled and made quite a nice future for themselves, really. Um, <laughs> yeah. Read Patricia Bracewell, who, um, who wrote about Queen Emma, who married Ethelred the Unready. And of course, everyone remembers Ethelred the Unready. He was just the guy who just kept bribing Vikings to go away and they just came coming back for more bribes um, and caused a lot of damage and stuff. And oh, what else have I read? That, see, so many, so that's many. That's amazing in itself because um, you and I know Pat uh, and have met her in person. And uh, mm -hmm. I think uh, I I'd ne never really uh, knew who Emma 
uh, was, but was a formidable female, a real person uh, living oh, in yeah. times when actually you probably wouldn't want to be a woman. Um, tough, tough times. Um, but she was formidable. I mean, she was uh, amazing. And, 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 and she Pat, was. It... Uh, yeah, yeah. And Pat has just brought out, I think, her the third one in her trilogy about um, uh, Emma and the Vikings. I haven't read it yet. Got it yes, on my shelf. I haven't but... read it yet either. It's currently on my way, waiting to yeah, be read pile. Yeah. My to be read red pile never shrinks. It just grows. <laughs> uh, so, and, uh, and you you you've read non-fiction as well. I think you must have. You know, yes, immersed yes, yourself because, totally in the well, whole thing. Yeah, because following the documentary, kind of like that also encouraged me to learn more about the actual historical facts so I can get a taste of the facts behind the fiction. And so I've read, um, oh my God, I can remember the titles, but never the author's <laughs> names. I know I've read at least two books on King Canute, who became the second husband of Queen Emma, who we mentioned briefly. They're my dream power couple. I mean, if everyone loves Game of Thrones, they need to read this era of Canute and Queen Emma because that was the real Game of Thrones. Mm. But that's getting slightly off topic. Um, but yeah, I've read some books that I got at the Orbit Viking Centre because, of course, me being local to North Yorkshire, my mum suddenly pointed out that, do you know they do an annual Viking festival every February <laughs> half term? I'm like, oh, do they now? Well, hey. I'll go to that then. And I've been going to it more or less consecutively since 2006. Yes. I went in my first year at university and dragged my poor mum along with me. Oh. I didn't have many university friends who were interested in Vikings at the time. As I got older, I kind of went on my own and made other friends. Um, but they were great at kind of like, because it is such a big festival, there's sadly not been much of it because of the pandemic. And it was mm. bad weather the year before, which absolutely outruled it as well. Um, but you kind of like meet the people that do all the reenactment stuff and they are absolutely passionate wells of wisdom and knowledge about this age because they read up on it practice it live it as the reenactment term defines um so but they also provide lots of talks for historians to come and meet people like me who don't study vikings i don't have a phd in anything to do with vikings i just read lots of stuff on vikings or go to events like Jorvik put on to learn from the experts directly and I've learned so much from them I've got at least two full notebooks full of notes wow. that I've taken at all the lectures and notes I've been to whether I'll use them again or go through them again I don't know but I always felt it was good just to write things down whilst yeah. I <laughs> remember well, them because it was all fascinating and it felt a waste to just listen to it and then have it sit at the back of my mind and fade with time right uh, there, there's a couple of questions for you uh, one is about the whole viking thing i mean so 20 years ago you first started reading bernard cornwall um and yeah. just think Gosh. where vikings have gone since then because there's been a lot of revisionist history hasn't there or actually bringing vikings to the fore we've got the amazon series i don't know how many F the series about five or six uh, series of the vikings um i don't know mm. how historically inaccurate they are but you know we could talk about that but mm. um the vikings have uh, and the the big exhibition at the british museum which uh yes, i really, was very fortunate to go to that yeah me too and and it really brought a lot of people when i was going around it people were going well i just thought the vikings were these brutes who came in and raping and mm. actually uh the People know different now, don't they? That actually it was, mm. it was a civilization, um, a full mm -hmm. civilization, and they spread all the way from uh, 
Norway, uh, Denmark, Sweden, right across to the Far East, into Siberia, across to mm -hmm. us, and even to America, and even yeah. South. Uh, just uh, 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 and that's all changed, I think, in the last twenty years. Where I think I remember Magnus Magnuson. Some of us will remember Magnus Magnuson, mm. who I think used to talk about the Vikings, and people will go, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, we know all about them." Um, how much do you think that that is down to um, people like Bernard Cornwall and the other authors you mentioned, um, as well as obviously academics who've been working away at this and, and, and bringing things forward? How much do you think historical fiction has had to, to play in that? I guess uh, it kind of latches onto the point you made about how it's also partnered up with academic writing, yeah. because if there isn't Viking history research or excavations mm. and stuff fine, then these authors wouldn't have anything to inspire them to write. Mm. I remember when I first went to one of my many Giles Christian events, I became a bit of a mad fan and followed him <laughs> whenever he came up north. But he spoke about what in person inspired him to write his series, and it was because his mother is Norwegian, so he's got quite mm. close family ties to Norway, and he went to the Gokstad Viking Ship Museum and saw the Gokstad ship burial there, and that just made him think about the voyages that ship must have gone if it did sail anywhere, or the other ships that did sail and have never been found because they were buried or lost at sea, and that's what sparked for him, and it, it kind of, it's, it's a dual relationship, it's just like yin and yang, one feeds the other and the other feeds that, because I don't think as you say, I wouldn't have probably gone to the Jorvik Centre and the festivals and the talks if I hadn't been inspired by the history from the documentary I was watching, but even more so from the book that I read, which was set in the same era and mm. involved the same places or events and kind of stuff from history. Because after all, historical fiction authors have got to write things that are as close to as possible with a bit of creative artistic licence. Yeah to the area they're writing otherwise they know they're going to get academics or avid readers who know their stuff a bit better than the author does writing and saying oh you they didn't do that they didn't have neon pens or anything like that <laughs> just to be really abstract an example yeah. that just popped in so so uh, it is a dual yeah. relationship i think now um so talking of all these things obviously utred has come to our screens now firstly of all it was bbc i think the first two series and then moved to netflix yeah uh, I'm not even going to ask you whether you think it's historically accurate because you kind of had a very special relationship with uh, with that uh, series, didn't you? Oh, especially season two. Through some sheer luck of the gods, somehow I got a direct message when season two was coming out. Oh, gosh, that must have been at least three or four years ago now. Um, direct message from Carnival Film Studios who were partnered with the BBC producing it saying hi we noticed you're a fan of the series would you like to come down to London to meet some of the cast and watch season, episode one of season two premieres before the week before it comes out on national TV and I was like yeah sure I'll, I'll have do that <laughs> managed to explain to my managers at work that this is kind of like a once in a lifetime opportunity I know I'm not really meant to go off and have fun with people from a tv series but could I please just have the day off in the week yeah. just to go down and thankfully they were really understanding and could see how excited I was and let me go and so I made the trip down it was only for the afternoon so I did actually spend the other half of the day going around the British Museum looking at all the Viking mm. stuff there and um, the Sutton Who stuff, which I'd never seen before, which was just breathtaking, as always. It always looks breathtaking, but it's even more breathtaking mm. in real life. Um, and then we went into the studio building, joined a few other people that had also been invited down. We didn't know each other. We all 
actually remained really aloof with, with each other. We're all on our phones tweeting about how we're here. We're going to see this person and see this person ask that question. So, yeah, so there was Alexander Draymond there who played Uchard. There was David Dawson who played King Alfred. He was really lovely. He, he was the only one that noticed that was from the north. He goes, you're from the north, aren't you? I said, yes, I am. I am. I come from a little village outside York. I'm currently living in West Yorkshire, but I am from the true North Yorkshire. Um, so, yeah, he was super nice. And, and there was Elizabeth who played his wife. I've forgotten her name already, but sadly she's already gone from the third season. And then there was um, Rune Tempt who played Uber, which is a, he's a ginormous, really super friendly, big blonde Swedish guy, I think. Mm. I know he's definitely Scandinavian, but he was really nice. And there was also the guy who played Ethelwold, who finally got his comeuppance in season four. Um, but yeah, lots of spoilers. Got his name. It's going to annoy me. Not seen it, but, but you know, <laughs> it is that they are Vikings and Anglo-Saxons, and people do suddenly just die, don't they? I mean, that's that that that's how it was, you know. So somewhere lurking <laughs> on your shelves, I'm guessing there's a picture of you and Uhtred. Um Is there? Um, I haven't got it framed or printed, oh. sadly, but it is kind of like on my PC and on my phone and. Of course, I tweeted it and put it on my Instagram profile, and of course, got lots of likes. People saying, "Oh my God, how did you meet him?" I said, "I was just lucky to get invited," kind but of thing. Um, I, I just think that's amazing. So it kind of it brings us full circle. Uh, I, I was sort of joking that Uhtred has changed your life, but actually, um, I bet you can't imagine your life without all of that, uh, that uh, all of that Viking Anglo-Saxon stuff. It's kind of gone beyond just a hobby and an interest. It is part of your your being, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. It yeah. is. As you say, I really don't know where, what passions, what interests I would have pursued if it. I mean, I guess I've always had a general fascination with history, and that came from my dad, and he was also the big bookworm of the family, mm. so he encouraged me to read. So I guess the founding blocks really lay with him because he was always interested in history generally. And I know he would have loved the British Museum if he'd been around and able to go to it. Mm. But yeah, it, I really don't know what I would have done with my um, life without I'm, uh, I'm glad Vikings. you settled the Vikings <laughs> and the Anglo-Saxons. It could have been much worse, couldn't it? You know? Oh, look, Becky, look, thanks ever so much for uh, giving us a little bit of time. And I have already promised that we will have an Anglo-Saxon Viking special Bookalicious podcast in uh, in months to come. Um, that's when I've dealt with the Wild West and a few other uh, uh, topics. And uh, we'll see if we can get uh, Pat Bracewell, Matthew Harfey, maybe Giles as well. Giles Christian, that'd be great, wouldn't it? Um, I'm sure I could give him a nudge. Yeah. I know quite a few. <laughs> yeah, that would be no. Actually, that would be fabulous if you get Bernard Cornwall as well and get the full set. Then uh, um, uh, you'd be I don't doing... know him directly, but I know someone who does, Helen Hollick, because she commented on the Facebook post that you mentioned at the start. She says, "Oh, I know him. He's a lovely man. He'd really like this." I'm like, "Well, please call him then, Helen." Because <laughs> well, um, he lives in, I think he lives in America now, doesn't he? Uh, he does. He does. He's got. But, big big estate i think of some sort in america yeah. i did actually meet him once when he came over oh gosh some years ago for the manchester literature festival mm. and i remember kind of like hearing him talk about how he wrote the series and it turns out he has some family connection to the actual utrud bevenberg wow history okay. which surprised me 
I'd like to. But he also did Scuss Sharp as well, because there were Sharp fans there. So it wasn't exclusive. Well, yeah, me. and he also did. Um, he did a, a Civil War series, American Civil War series. The man is incredible. Yep. Uh, you know, he's he uh, prolific. He did um, a medieval. Um, yeah, he's. I, I don't know how many books he's written, but of course, it doesn't matter that he's in America now. We can do this. We can zoom. So <laughs> that's true. Um, that's yeah. True. So thanks ever so much, Becky. Uh, and we'll um, you you perfectly round off our podcast about historical fiction and uh, how important <laughs> it is uh, in, in all our lives. And uh, we'll we'll get back together again when we do Anglo-Saxons and Vikings for real. So no one can say that history and historical fiction can't change your life. Once you've heard that from from Becky talking about how her whole life became absorbed into Vikings and that period of history, and she she can't still can't get enough of it. Um, it's amazing, isn't it? I mean, you guys, you feel. I mean, you know, you don't have to read historical fiction, but I'm guessing all four of us here absolutely love history in its in different forms. You know, at the top of the show, we I started with that quote about um, um, we are not makers of history, we are made by history. Do you think that's yeah. true? You yes. Can, yeah, 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 it is. It's, I mean, you can't really, we are in a sense creating history just in this last hour of a, of a podcast, haven't we? But, uh, we I, I certainly a well into family history you know and I, I, I it isn't about someone's once said to me about family history which uh, is this is relevant stay with me um and they said oh you're looking to find a pot of gold somewhere you know thinking that i'm looking for my fortune or some rich family that's not it i really want to know about the guy who was a shepherd who turned up from nowhere in a village and married my great grandmother i wanted i still don't know where he came from and i just really wanted to know how he ended up in that village and played in the village mama's troupe and I think, uh, I think it's just yeah. I think history is a, is a thing like obviously as someone who's studied history people always say to me I don't like history I find it really boring it's not interesting it's not my thing but everybody has a certain area yeah. that they're interested in you just need to find that area my first kind of met like best school trip I ever went on was a place called Legacy which was a farm where you could paint yourself blue and do a wattle and daub you know well, one day I will bring that back everybody I swear I swear that's that's one of my goals I right? think we'll do but the video just... podcast that time <laughs> <laughs> but that that's the thing it, it it's part it's part of us it's it's in our DNA it's in our nature just some there's just something about it that you know yeah it's stories and getting to know people and learn about different people and, and different time periods and I think, I think we've all got a little bit of patience as well because one thing that I've gained from all of these sort of time slip stories and there's also science fiction that goes back into the past and a lot of it is about revisiting what we think we know about the past mm -hmm. if we could change the yeah. past or if the, carrying the, the past into the future and how that changes us um, going back to shark dialogues, I remember watching the film Pearl Harbor fairly shortly after I'd read it. Oh, I was interested <laughs> to see what you know, having read about about one experience of Pearl Harbor, one interpretation of it, or what it was like for the people on the ground. I thought, okay, I'll watch this Hollywood film, and 
I wouldn't say it was unwatchable, but it, it certainly registered differently having read the book and feeling that I had other perspectives on it. Um, you know, the, the native Hawaiian islanders as opposed to the Americans who you know, jump in. So that for me was interesting to experience two not, you know, different views on the same event in the past, if only to underline the fact that, you know, it, it wasn't that one interpretation was right and one was wrong. It was just that they were two different viewpoints, two different perspectives. And I think that is so valuable to understand when we're looking at the past. That I, 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 I do urge people, um, uh, uh, Holly and Dave and I just touch on Walter Scott briefly, who was the kind of... Uh, uh, father of historical fiction, I, I I wouldn't urge them to read Walter Scott and then rush to look at Braveheart, uh, for instance. That doesn't quite work for me. But you know, if it actually makes you go away and look for, um, maybe read about Scottish history or go and find, I discovered um, from I can't remember John John Preble. Does anyone remember or, or heard of John Preble? It may be way before. Your... I think so, but I'm not yeah. sure used to fill shelves of um, most public libraries and he, he specialised in um, Scottish uh, historical fiction um, and they were very good, they're a bit dry, you know, they weren't necessarily rip-roaring adventures um, and not, I think, more historically accurate than Braveheart, definitely, and definitely more uh, historically accurate than Walter Scott, who was just out for the adventure. Uh, but it made me go off, and I realised that actually Scottish history is something we don't, you know, even in Wales or England, um, you just don't know about it. And it ha actually there is a different trajectory that the whole of Scotland only came together with uh, England and Wales uh, a few centuries ago, yeah. Um, and uh, that's why it's fantastic that we have a, uh, a, a young author who's won a prize with Walter Scott's name to it. I'll just say it again, Holly, because, you know. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Thank yeah, you. yeah, yeah. Um, so, look, look, folks, um, I, I, I hope you've enjoyed this show. It's probably a much longer than a podcast ought to be, but it, uh, we've we fitted in and you, you hopefully get our passion for books and history uh, here and do stay listening um, because we've got coming up fantasy in June um, some breaking news uh, I have had a conversation with our friends at Gladstone's Library in Harden and I am hoping very much in August that we will have a dedicated podcast episode to the whole thing that is Gladstone's Library, which has definitely touched my life and Gwyn's life and Lara's life. And not quite yours yet, Holly, but we will get <laughs> to Gladstone's Library because uh, they're reopening again in September and are going to have a mini Gladfest. Um, the, the other thing that is going to also become, well, we should also say that July will be uh, where I finish reading westerns and things about the American West uh, and watching westerns. I've watched so many westerns. <laughs> um, and uh, later on in the year as well, we will definitely do the uh, celebrate the 150th anniversary of uh, Alice Through the Looking Glass. Yes, well, you, this this podcast comes to you totally free, and and we don't even put adverts up. Isn't that great? Uh, so you can listen to the whole. This is probably an hour and a half uh, for 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 free. And if if you do, uh, we'd love you to put comments on wherever you're listening to your podcast. There's usually a space that says these people are fantastic, 
and um, that encourages and go and tell your friends because we want lots of other people to listen as well thanks ever so much for listening you've been listening to bookalicious available wherever you get your podcasts don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode and tell your friends we love to know you're listening so please like us or leave a comment have a look at our website bookalicious.com and you can contact us on info at bookalicious.com thank you for listening until next time i wish you all happy reading